Well, hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Real Talk with Real Leaders. And I have a real leader once again with me, Dr. Joseph Matera. Uh, he's internationally known author, consultant, theologian. His mission, I like this, is to influence leaders who are influencing culture. He also happens to be the founding pastor of Resurrection Church and leads several organizations, which include the US Coalition of Apostolic Leaders, and Christ Covenant Coalition. He's the author of 11 best-selling books, uh, including his latest, which we'll talk about, Poisonous Power. So really appreciate you, Dr. Joseph, being with us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited about this. Awesome. So I want to start with this first question, and I want to pose it like this. We're just going to have a little fun. But uh, so there is a least philly thing about me and that is i don't like i don't drive like i'm trying to be on a cops tv show episode right i'm not a crazy driver and if you know anything about philly there could be some crazy drivers around that are i don't know why they're they drive the way they drive or who gave them their license but i would say my driving i think my wife would agree is one of the least philly things about me but that is just kind of a setup to ask you, what's the least New York thing about you? Wow. Well, because New York is so diverse, multicultural, and made up of uh, so many different kinds of people, that would be hard to uh, answer because it depends on what neighborhood you're in. So my creative side would fit the New York genre of people because I was a professional musician and wrote poetry uh, right now. Um, and uh, perhaps my conservative side would not be like most mainstream New Yorkers, uh, a more conservative when it comes to biblical theology, family and ethics and those kind of things. So that would not be in line with the ideology of Mayor de Blasio and Cuomo and others. Um, but there are many, many people with that theological bent in the church and outside of the evangelical church, especially in New York State. So but I would that, that would be the only thing I could say is perhaps I'm very conservative by nature and honor history. And I'm not of the opinion that just because it's new, it's better. I don't preach anything new. I preach everything I preach is old and trying to bring the old into the language of culture. That's basically who I am. So maybe that's the least New York about me. Yeah, I get it. I, I'm just glad it's nothing like you don't like pizza. Because if you didn't like pizza, that would be really the least New York thing about you. <laughs> wow. Not with a name well, like Matera, right? Well, yeah, well, my mother, my grandmother was the first ordained Hispanic minister in New York City history. My mother was born in Puerto Rico and my father's Italian. So I've got the Italian and the Hispanic in me. I love pizza but I don't eat pizza. I stopped having dairy in 19, oh, I forget, about 21, 22 years ago. So I cut dairy out of my 
my diet because I was getting too many allergies and getting sick and it helped me a lot. But other than that, I love pizza. I hear you. I hear you. Well, great. It's good to know a little bit more about you when it comes to that. Now, I want to get into the, the, the meat of what I wanted to, uh, some questions I had for you. Um, I, I think you would agree. I would say there is a kingdom clash going on right now when it comes to culture. You're you know, a student of culture. You're also you know, one who preaches on kingdom culture. And the culture of the kingdom, uh, and then there's a culture of the kingdom of darkness that's trying to impose itself on the, you know, the culture of the kingdom of heaven. So what are some of the things that the kingdom of darkness is trying to do, in your opinion, to oppose, impose itself on the citizens, those who belong to the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, what are you kind of noticing in the current culture that's really happening with the kingdom of, of darkness imposing itself on, on the believer? Wow, great question. So throughout the church age, over 2,000 years, there's always been a challenge of how do we influence culture? How do we relate the gospel to culture without the culture influencing the church? And uh, I find that that's been a challenge in this day and age. Um, unfortunately, with our goal and zeal of making the gospel, quote unquote, relevant, we have gone the way of a attractional church model that has gutted the gospel out and has collapsed it down to a 20-minute feel-good message, motivational message. And I think the appeal of the ego from the kingdom of darkness on pastors to have a large church, to be loved and liked by everybody, to uh, be quote-unquote relevant, to be cool, and to track with younger people has unfortunately diluted the potency of the church in many younger church pastors and evangelicals in general, not just picking on the young ones. And unfortunately, even though the gospel is being preached in some ways, especially at the end, is an altar call to receive Christ. Um, the lack of theological content, the lack of biblical training in the churches and discipleship has resulted in a church, by and large, that has a belief system that is akin to many heretical views that the church councils of the first seven centuries wrote against. So you have revival of Arianism. That was the whole reason why we have the Gospel of, I'm sorry, the Council of Nicaea in 325. You have a revival of Pelagianism, which was written against uh, in the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD, and uh, the Council of Orange as well. And you have a revival of universalism, uh, and you also have something that the Council of Constantinople in 381 wrote against, uh, where they put forth the Holy Spirit as equal to the Father and Son and deity against what was called the Pneumatakians, who were warriors against the Spirit, uh, so to speak, 
because they talked about the Holy Spirit as, as subordinate to the Father and the Son. And so today you have many Christians who are polled, who believe there are many ways to God, that's universalism, who believe Jesus was a created being, that's Arianism, uh, who believe the Holy Spirit is just a force, uh, that's uh, Pneumatarchianism, uh, Council of Constantinople dealt with that. So it's not that the pastors are heretic or heresy uh, supporters. They're not preaching heresies, that they're not preaching the full counsel of God, and they're trying to just get crowds, and it's leaving the people to come up with their own belief system. So it's not what is being preached, it's what is not being preached. And I believe it is an influence in the kingdom of darkness, because I, as I said, it's an appeal to the ego to try to get as many people as possible in the church, because success is largely defined in the American gospel as having the most people, the biggest budget, and the largest edifice. Uh, so it may be a curious answer on my part, the kingdom of darkness. Um, how does it influence the church? Well, I believe that is the most deleterious and destructive and subversive influence. The ego, the diluting of the gospel, and the extreme attractional church model that lacks discipleship. Some uh, discipleship-driven churches do have an attractional model. It's a hybrid, which is good. You know, Sunday, you do want to attract people to get, to get them saved. But if you don't have a discipleship during the week, if you don't have a deep dive with small groups uh, that also complement the attractional model, then, then you're having a gutted church as far as I'm concerned. Wow. Yeah. I, I've talked about how we almost have to redefine success in the church because we have been counting the wrong things. We've been counting people over actual disciples. I think we have a lot of people. We can attract the crowd, like you were saying, but uh, we don't have many disciples. We have um, some people who are servants, but they're not sons. They haven't made that transition. So that is a curious answer. When you were talking there, it kind of took me back to like why revival tarries. That book by, I believe it was Leonard Ravenhill. And he really, you said you had a nicer answer, but his, his, the way he would jar you with and provoke you to think about like, what are the things that we're doing that are contributing to us gathering in places, but the spirit is absent. And uh, yeah, I think, you, you, you said some things there that are really going to be helpful to people. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. And, and uh, uh, Ravenhill was influenced by Tozer, who wrote a book, I think in the late 40s, called Entertainment in the Church. And he could have read that, wrote that book today and preached it, and it would have fit. So we're dealing with the same issues. You know, people want to get entertained. They don't want to be discipled. And uh, they want to use God instead of loving God and knowing God and seeking God for God's sake, not for their own sake. So right. that's what the core of discipleship is. Where, where do you put secularism and or humanism in with all that's happening as well that the, uh, that the kingdom of darkness is using to, to kind of influence what's happening in the kingdom of heaven? 
Well, it all begins with our children. So if a parent isn't discipling their children, that is to say, giving them a full-orbed teaching of scripture from when they're like three years old, giving them Bible stories, narrative, and then as they get older, applying that more the gospel to culture, uh, then their children are going to be discipled in the secular mindset if their child is in public school. And so the secular mindset is a deconstruction of truth. Uh, it's a revision of history. Uh, it's, uh, you know, progress uh, comes with modernity and anything that's old is to be jettisoned and there's no respect for uh, parents, no respect for history, no respect for anything but innovation. Uh, and the prophets of culture, of scientists, uh, people in technology, the church's voice has been uh, silenced. The church used to be the ethical, prophetic voice into culture. And in the church abandoned culture many years ago. Uh, the effects are that, you know, the humanists have filled in the vacuum and they're now telling us what's right and wrong. And there is no right or wrong except the advance of human ingenuity. Um, and the taboo today is a re restriction of human freedom. Um, but you're actually a slave if you don't have guidelines, if you don't have form, you can have no true freedom because you don't have boundaries, your freedom will lead you to slavery. Yep. And you'll become addicted and you'll become a victim of your own desires. That's why we need to have the old frameworks of scripture, the Judeo-Christian values. So without Judeo-Christian values, kids are lost. There's a rise in depression and suicide hedonism, living for pleasure, uh, not having a deeper meaning in life beyond what you do from nine to five. Um, so without these moorings of, of the Judeo-Christian meanings of life and values, um, I feel bad, you know, for young people. It's just they, they have a life without purpose. Yeah. And it's, it's a horrible life causation for drug abuse and sexual immorality and hooking up the hooking up culture with uh with these apps or just getting out of hand so it's all because of the the lack of having a cohesive christian worldview in our culture yeah i mean that the immorality and the sin causes you to just uh, the decay decay of the mind the decay of the self is really what it does. It doesn't enhance us. It actually causes decay. But you touched on something that uh, I want to uh, ask you a question about, and that it's about the family. The assault on the family is a big deal right now. The family is kind of the foundation of what God uses to kind of build societies, build healthy cultures. And uh, I think one of the things that you write about has to do with generational blessings. So I want to touch on that because through the family, generational blessings, when the, ab uh, the family is dysfunctional or absent, there's a sense where that generational blessing gets blocked or never, you know, that becomes like a foreign concept. But generational blessings are one of the ways that God continues to build on what previous generations started, that they can keep going and improving and getting better. So how do we position ourselves 
to keep the flow of generational blessings in light of the salt that's against us. What would you say to that? Well, yeah, that's one of my primary messages. I actually have a book called Walk in Generational Blessings. It's almost 300 pages. It's a very robust book on interpreting scripture through generations. I've never seen a book like it. It's probably the most important book I'll ever write. So someone could go to josephmatera.org, they could see it, or go to Amazon. But uh, yeah, that book is filled with a lot of practical ways to disciple, to, uh, you know, to look at your marriage and family as an instrument of the kingdom. And what I write in the book is that biblically, this is a strong case. You can't get away from the fact that God's hand is on biological families. So unfortunately, in the evangelical church, we only emphasize on quote-unquote winning souls. And what that implies is going after people not in your family, uh, going after the, you know, the lost and all that. I, I believe in all that, of course. That's so important. But mission begins at home. And so many parents are not taking the time to disciple their kids. There are missionaries um, in my day, in the baby boomer years, who actually would put their kids in boarding houses so that they could do missions. And uh, Christianity Today revealed the horrific abuse. Uh, and I can't imagine that that took place at the hands of these boarding schools, so-called Christian boarding schools. Mm. I can't imagine giving my kids over to strangers to raise my children, even if it's so-called Christian, in the name of missions. And, and so we have this distorted view that the kingdom of God means preaching the gospel to the lost. But the kingdom of God includes my marriage. It includes my children. And God has a call for every biological family. And he wants us to have a generational impact. One of the strongest cases for this uh, succinctly stated is in Psalm 78, where it talks about four generations, how God operates through all these generations. And he's called us to at least think of three generations ahead. It says a good man um, leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And he told Adam and Eve, even before they had one child, he said to multiply, meaning I want you to think generationally. I want you to think at least to your grandchildren. And Jesus even said, the works that I do shall you do, and even greater than these shall you do, because I go to my Father. So the Father is the first generation, Jesus is the second, the church is the third generation. And the first Pentecostal message ever preached by Peter, when the Jewish people said, what shall we do after he preached on the day of Pentecost, which is coming up Sunday, um, they uh, heard Peter say, repent and be baptized, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then he said, right after that, in the context of the gift of the Holy Spirit, this promises to you and to your children and to our, to, uh, our many as are far off. So in other words, he's saying right away, the Pentecostal message, the Pentecostal church, the original message, the first message of the church after he was born was a generational message. He said, this promises to you. This is where the American church stops, the evangelical church. It's this I, me, my. It's the one generational church. But Peter didn't stop there. He said, this promises to you and to your children. It's a command to pass your faith down to your children and to 
as many as are far away or are far off, meaning not children that are scattered throughout the world. It's talking about generationally. That's what the original Greek and the syntax of the Greek mean, that it's your children that are far off, but they're still in your bloodline. They're still part of your loins. They're people that are yet to be born that are to be a part or a participant in this gift of the Holy Spirit. And then when you examine the book of Acts, you'll see it's replete with stories of biological families all coming to Christ together. Uh, you could talk about Cornelius and his whole house in Acts chapter 10. You could talk about Lydia in Acts 16, and a whole family was baptized. You could talk about the Philippian jailer. He and his whole family heard the gospel and were baptized. And you could go on and on and on with that. So implicit in the gospels, implicit in both testaments, is a command to bring our whole family into the faith and to perpetuate a generational blessing so that every family becomes a dynasty. The word dunamis in Acts 1.8, where it says, we will receive power after that the Holy Ghost come upon us. The word power, of course, you know, is dunamis. And that's where you get the word dynasty. So part of the power of the Holy Spirit is not just speaking in tongues and miracles. It's strategy. It's being able to impart your faith to your children. It's having the, the wherewithal and the spirit to have a strong family and to create a dynastic, powerful generational blessing in each of your families. That's why Jesus gave us the spirit, not just the speaking in tongues. That was powerful. Man, something you said there uh, early on is about the whole one generational church and that the mindset of a one generational church is, uh, you know, me, myself, and I. That was, that was significant. So I want to, I wanna, you know, um, get into this, this question. Uh, so now that we understand how the generational, we should be generational thinkers, say somebody is outside of that place where they're, they feel like, I'm not, there's not that flow of generational blessing, whether they might not have it in their family because that's not what their family has um, chosen to believe, or uh, they're just in a place where they, they do have that around them, but don't know how to access that. How do you, how do you encourage people to position themselves to be in the flow where they're able to receive from and be in a dynasty like you described? Yeah, well, a great model is Paul the Apostle, even though he wasn't married. You look at First Timothy chapter, I'm sorry, First Thessalonians chapter two, he talks about how he gave his life to them, uh, how he treated them like his own children. He imparted not just the gospel, but his life. And in First Timothy five, he describes the church as a household, a family of families, he said to treat the older men as, as fathers, older women as mothers, younger as sons and daughters, etc., brothers, sister. And so uh, they're called the household texts for a reason, because he depicts the churches as God's family, God's household. And that being said, one of the most important things a pastor is to model is to be a parent, a spiritual parent. And so when we first started in Sunset Park, which we saw transformed without gentrification in a Hispanic at-risk community, it took us about 12 years, but we saw the whole 
whole area transformed the whole 166,000. And uh, the first thing we realize is they don't need a preacher. They need a father. They need a mother. And they were coming from families of fragmentation, five kids, all different last names. They didn't know who their father was. It was a mess. So we realized that reparenting and discipleship was synonymous in our context. And I had to be a surrogate father. And what they needed more was a hug and affirmation than just the message. They needed us to do life with them. Many of them were in gangs, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. They had a gang because they had no family. They had a family, but it was fragmented and they were abandoned, especially by their fathers. And so we realized that we had to create a culture in the church of hospitality, which is one of the commands of Paul in 1 Timothy 3 that qualifies someone to be an elder. It's not just being able to handle the great mysteries of the faith. Uh, and it's not just having good character, but it's also being hospitable, which means that your house has to be a vehicle for God's presence and for transformation. And it's because you can't aptly disciple people if you don't bring them into a family context, because the church is a family. So some of the greatest leaders we ever raised up lived with me for years. And uh, some of them became church planters, uh, not just biological, but spiritual children. And I knew I had to take them out of their context and put them in my house. And, uh, and so that is, is all how you do this. You can't just preach this. Someone doesn't have a frame of reference if they hear this even if they get convicted, they don't have a frame of reference if they've never experienced a two-parent stable household. Um, and they need to see it modeled. And sometimes we need to have the families in our church uh, bring young men, young women in to live with us, to model it. And at least the church itself could have that kind of culture of being a family of families. And we could be to the single mom and her children, we could be that family. So when that child lacks a father, one of us could be a father or a big brother or sister, whatever. And that's why the church is called to care for the orphans and widows. Yep. We can't do that just by throwing money or giving food. We have to do it by being a family of families. No, that's excellent. It sounds just like our lives. We talk about, we live lives that are in a glass house. We're not trying to uh, build homes that people never visit, but uh, build a home that everybody is able to come into and participate in. So love that message. Now, you know, I think every generation or every time period has its set of challenges that bring about these limitations. And some people would see it as that, right? There's, there's limitations, there's too many hurdles. Um, and especially in the time we're living in now, there can be a lot of things that seem like they're hurdles to advancement or success. However, those who are able to see, you know, the, like the sons of Issachar, that they are able to see the times and understand what to do in these times. Uh, what do you see are some of the opportunities that you're hoping the church is taking advantage of in the hour we're in? Well, the pandemic has given us a huge opportunity to stop viewing the church as a building. The building's been taken away from us. For 
hundreds of years, we would say, I'm going to church, or we look at a church building and say, well, it's a nice church. It's not a church, it's a building. And I'm hoping that this pandemic gets us out of the mindset, which is worse than the vocabulary or the descriptions of the building. It's the mindset behind that, which is that church is an event on Sunday. It can no longer be defined as an event on Sunday. It can no longer be defined as a building. And the fact of the matter of the, the fact that uh, people are quarantined, that they're home, they have to focus on the marriage, their children, the church comes into the home through the internet. And that's amazing. I think it's a great opportunity to build altars and houses, to work on spending time with family, uh, to figure out ways beyond the Sunday meeting to gauge success. Uh, churches that haven't made disciples, churches that don't know the names of the people that come because they're so big, they're in trouble. So you don't connect on a, a small scale with individuals and, and help visit and care for the sick, shop for the elderly, which our church has done. Um, and uh, we have an NGO that we help start that my wife leads, that my wife founded, and they've been ministering tremendously to, to all the children in the community, to many of the children in the community. Uh, and so these are opportunities for the church to show the love of Christ, creativity, and to connect to people as individuals and not just depend on a building for a visceral experience of great preaching and great music. And then that's it. They go home and they think they're a Christian because they spent an hour and a half somewhere. So I think this pandemic has blown that up. Uh, I hope that it's a recalibration that never ends. I hope that most of us don't try to spend the next 10 years rebuilding what we lost the last two months. I hope we take what this recalibration has brought and build on that. And, uh, and so as a son of Issachar, what would they think? What would they detect God is doing? Um, and I, I would say that you know, again, not being church building centric, uh, having small groups, reaching people individually, and of course, the use of technology. I think God has forced the church. It's almost quote uh, what John Wesley said, the whole world is my parish. Well, this is the way we can expand the gospel. And we could say, wait a minute, our parish can now be beyond the geographic region of where our church is. And maybe we could start churches initially through an online service and then begin to have a micro church with smaller groups and then they could become church plants eventually. There's so many creative things that could come out of this. It's, it's amazing. Uh, and all the apostolic friends I know are flourishing during this time. Yeah. There are more people and most of them are doing better financially than they did before the pandemic. Hmm. Uh, but the people who are not uh, either in an apostolic network or influenced with a prophetic apostolic mindset, a lot of them are really struggling and they don't know what to do. And I, I feel bad for them. Wow. Yeah. What a great perspective. And, 
and us just looking at how the opportunities are there and where our alignments are, because those alignments can are definitely opportunities in which people can find themselves flourishing. Now, I have one more question for you, um, and it's it's out of the curiosity of one of the books that I saw that you had um, that previously was published about poisonous power. Um, so, how do we get to an age where there is a toxic leadership, and this is kind of based on your book, Poisonous Power, where you talk about the age of toxic leadership. Like, how do we get there? Well, you know, unfortunately, I'll pick on our own camp, the charismatic camp. The charismatic camp has focused on gifts and charisma and abilities more than character. And because of that, we elevate people who are gifted preachers, song leaders, worship leaders, musicians, so-called prophets, um, and we don't detect what their internal calibration is like. We don't detect their character. We don't test them. And we're enamored with their gifts. And so many Christians think that just because someone has a powerful preaching ministry or a healing ministry that they're a man or woman of God. And all you got to do is look at First Corinthians and see that you could be the most carnal Christian in the world and move in all the gifts of the Spirit. So if you read the Bible, you see that's not true. Uh, and so one of the reasons why we have poisonous power in the church is because, and in the world, the world does this all the time. They don't care how you act at home. If you have the gifts, you could bring money in for my company. Uh, you know, so be it. So that secularization of, of the country has elevated capitalism uh, as the main goal of the acquiring of goods and comfort and uh, hedonistic tendencies of pleasure uh, have become more important to the American culture than virtue, than humility, than sacrifice and service like we saw in the great generation of World War II. Um, and so I'm not saying all these virtues are gone, but unfortunately it's been drowned in the, you know, a lot of young people today, they want to be famous. Uh, their goal is to have a lot of followers on Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, uh, Facebook, whatever it is. And, you know, it used to be that a young person's greatest goal was to serve, was to benefit humanity. And this is because of the lack of the Judeo-Christian ethic. And again, the church is guilty of that as well. And I believe that God has called us to go back to the way of Christ and his apostles. Before Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those who are the peacemakers. They will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are thirst for righteousness. So in other words, he framed it with character, being Christ-like, before he said, you're the salt of the earth and light of the world. Well, we in the church, we want to have all this influence, all this power, but we don't want to go through the grid of being poor in spirit, of being empathetic, which is being merciful. And... Um, he promised the meek the, the earth, and yet we see power-hungry Christians preaching on the kingdom, talking about dominion and taking cities, 
when God said it's the meek that inherit the earth. So how do we reconcile the selfish ambition, power, grab of, of some of the preaching that we hear? You know, we're going to take the city for God. Well, what do you mean? You don't take any city. You love your city. You serve your city. And when you become a humble problem solver that helps the leaders of the city, they'll beg you to lead. They'll put you at the, the table because the leader in the kingdom of God, it's in, inverted. It's an inverted kingdom. Jesus said, don't lead like the Gentiles. It's not top down. It's being a servant. And when we serve our cities, we will become the leaders. We'll reach our city. So I would say that uh, the character of Christ is more important to have inside of us than the ministry of Christ. Because once we have the character of Christ, the ministry of Christ will follow. If your ministry isn't, uh, is larger than the bandwidth of your character, you're a, a disaster waiting to happen. So that's a long answer to a short question. There's a lot of stuff in Poisonous Power. By the way, that's not my last book. My last book was in October. Many say it's the best book I ever wrote. It's called The Jesus Principles. Jesus Principle, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that came out in October. And that is the whole story of how we raise up disciples in Sunset Park and the Jesus model for releasing greatness in people. Yeah, that was excellent stuff. I'm hearing you speak and maybe some people would like hear this and what you just described as what how toxic leadership comes about. And I can imagine some people might be hearing it as like uh, just whistleblowing on behavior, but I think this goes back to the, the reason you're writing it is more from a parental place, because I think parents are called to protect. Although it feels like they're whistleblowing and picking on things, they're really there to protect and bring health back into something. Um, it, it, you know, I know I said it was the last question, but it really does feel um, that way. But was there anything else that provoked you to write that kind of material, poisonous power? Well, you know, in our own personal network, we focus more on internal transformation, not just best practices. And I feel like the, and to me, it is only behaviorism if it's pointing out what's wrong. Hopefully the book brings out how to receive the power for Christ to transform us. Nobody could live for God on their own. Uh, it's, it's impossible. That's one of the weaknesses of a lot of the leadership books and the authors like Napoleon Hill and, uh, and others that I could mention. Uh, a lot of it is behavior modification, just having a positive thought life, um, trying to uh, follow certain techniques. But all of that is going to fall short if you don't allow Christ to transform you. And the admonition in scripture is to be filled with the spirit. And in the Greek, it's be continually filled in Ephesians 5.18. Every single day, I need to wait on God. I need to get filled with the spirit. I, without, without a, an endowment from the spirit every day, without walking with Christ and yielding to the spirit, I'm a wretched, self-centered, grumpy, narcissistic man just like the rest of humanity. And so, yes, of course, the character of Christ gets formed in us and we change, but at the end of the day, without the spirit, 
we're we're in trouble. So poisonous power, without understanding the unique call of the Christian to be transformed and to be like Christ, that uh, people like Antonius and others called theosis has to do with God becoming a man so that man can pe become like God. It's a partaking of his divine nature. Every day we need to partake of his divine nature. Otherwise, we're going to live just like the world. So, yeah, it's only behavior modification if we don't receive the transformation from Christ. Yeah, well, well said. Dr. Matera, it's been such a blessing to have you. I know you have so much other things that I could pull on you and, and a wealth of wisdom, but I think uh, people can hear more and check you out more. We'll make sure we leave you details of josephmatera.org, I believe you said? Yes. And there's materials there, and I know there's a newsletter that goes out that just, if you like what you're hearing, there's plenty more to hear. And I just think uh, the Real Talk with Real Leaders is all about bringing in voices that are crucial in this hour, that are ministering something that helps form the character as well as develop the power of Jesus Christ through your life. So really appreciate you and thank you for your insights. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you.